0: Glad you all are here. Why don't you turn with me to that very same passage in Matthew, if you're not there already. We'll be taking a look at verses 18 through 22 as we continue on in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in the midst of a larger section, the third major section in the Gospel, chapters 8 and 9, which we've called the power of the king. As Jesus demonstrates his power uh, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, this morning we'll see that he has power over his disciples. He has power over his disciples. Just a quick note as you're turning there. Was reminded to give a quick update. Uh, Katie and Doug and little Cassidy, uh, Brute Log, I believe are home from the hospital. All of them. Uh, yeah, that's great. Praise, pr- praise the Lord for that. Um, last I talked to her was, oh, maybe Thursday. And, uh, she said, yeah, we're planning on coming home on Friday. Now, I haven't verified that, but that's, that's last I heard. So I presume that they're home and, and doing well. I know they appreciate your prayers and concern, and uh, so we're grateful for that. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, be with us this morning. Uh, Spirit, move among us in a powerful way, and through me, uh, guard my lips that I might teach that which is true and faithful to you and to your word, and help us to see that you uh, demand uh, power and authority uh, over us as your disciples, and it's our joy to follow you. We ask it in Christ's name, and all of God's people said together. Amen. All right, so we're in uh, chapters 8 and 9, the power of the king. Thus far, we have seen in chapter 8 that Matthew has given us three miracles of power, three miracles of healing meant to demonstrate that Jesus uh, has ultimate power, right? He has healed the leper, showing us that he has power over defilement. He has healed a Roman centurion, showing us that he has power over distance, And last week we saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law, revealing that he has power even over disease. Today, we're going to see that Jesus has power over his disciples as we come to what is uh, the first of three teachings uh, by Jesus in chapters 8 and uh, 8 and 9 on discipleship. We get three miracles and a teaching on discipleship. We get three miracles, teaching on discipleship. Three miracles, teaching on discipleship. And so we come to the very first teaching on what it means to be a follower. Of Christ, So here's sort of the question that I, I like to pose to you, and the question that I think our text answers for us this morning. What is the appropriate response to King Jesus? What is the appropriate response by a person when we see that Jesus has power and authority like he has demonstrated thus far, right? He has shown us that leprosy and paralysis and fever all obey the command of the king right? If leprosy and if fever and if paralysis obey the command of the king, how much more should those who follow him and consider ourselves to be his subjects, how much more should we obey the command of our king? What is the appropriate response to such a powerful king? Well, I want to answer that in part by telling you a story of a man. You'll see him on the screen behind me. He was a 19th century missionary. His name was C.T. Studd, S-T-U-D-D, C.T. Studd. And I think his story at least uh, illustrates the answer to that question. Now, as the story goes, he was an athlete over in England. Uh, He was in college at the time that he came to faith in Christ. You could say he was a stud athlete. Get it? Ah, yeah, that's right. He was a stud athlete. Actually, he was very good, and he was very good at cricket. He was a really good cricket player, and uh, he was a bright young man. His father was very wealthy, and so he sort of had the the world as his oyster. He was anticipating greatness in all sorts of ways. He comes to place his faith in Christ in college, but like many of us did in college, we didn't necessarily let Christ be in the driver's seat. Right? He he sort of put Christ on the back burner. He continued to pursue fame and fortune and, and athletic prowess. And as the story goes, he came across there in. London, a a little pamphlet, a, a little tract, if you will, that was written by one of the prominent agnostics of the day. And the agnostic had written this tract as as to why Christianity and Christians uh, were just full of it. Why it's not true. And in that tract, he he goes on to describe what the Christian response to the Christian doctrine should be. He says, you know why I'm not a Christian? It's because all of these Christians out there, they don't live like it. They're not consistent. And so he he goes on in this tract to describe, if I were a Christian... You know, if, if people are really Christians, then this is what it should look like. And I want to quote from this tract. So the agnostic writes, quote, Did I firmly believe, as Christians say they do, that the knowledge and the practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, then religion would mean everything to me. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts as vanity. He continues to write, religion would be my, f- my first waking thoughts and my last image before I sleep. I would labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a lifetime of suffering. And he writes, And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? End quote. As the story goes, this little track written by this agnostic convicted C.T. Studd so much uh, that he um, sort of gave his life to Christ again, right? He he said, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to actually live like it. He ended up going on the mission field, uh, and he was a very wealthy man. His in, When his inheritance came to him, as the story goes, he gave a, a large portion of it away to this upstart Bible college, little upstart Bible college up in Chicago, You may have heard of it, Moody Bible Institute. And so this is a great story, I think, of what is the appropriate response of someone who comes to follow and know Jesus Christ? Well, that is the appropriate response. So in our section today, what we're going to see is two men approach Jesus for discipleship. And he wants to teach them and he wants to teach us something about what it means to follow Christ So, two men approach Jesus. The first is a scribe. The second is, we'll call him a son. The scribe and the son. Now, the first man, the scribe, we're going to find out he was too quick and too presumptuous to commit to wholehearted allegiance. While the second man, the son, was quite the opposite. He was too hesitant to commit to wholehearted allegiance to Jesus. And here, In this little section, Jesus warns us against both pitfalls to discipleship. To the first man, Jesus is going to say, Stop and count the cost. Before you commit to follow me, stop and count the cost. Because Jesus is going to demand commitment without comfort. Commitment without comfort. To the second man, Jesus is going to say, Follow me at any cost. Follow me at any cost, because Jesus also demands commitment without compromise. Commitment without comfort, lesson number one. And commitment without compromise, discipleship lesson number two. The text is short. It, it, It comes to us in three sections. First of all, in verse 18, we see the setting. Then in verses 19 through 20, we see the scribe. And then finally, in verses 21 and 22, we see the son. Let's dive in now to verse 18. So if you were with us last week, you remember that Jesus is in the city of Capernaum. It's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is in Peter's house. And it's after dark. All sorts of people come to Jesus because they hear that he is there. And he heals everyone brought to him. And he casts out the demons. This miraculous display of power. Now as the stars begin to appear and darkness begins to fully descend, Jesus notices these crowds and, and, and they were growing and the miracles were, were creating these crowds. And so he gives um, orders to his disciples to depart from Capernaum and to go to the opposite side of the lake, the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. It was known as the, the, the Decapolis and it was primarily Gentile in nature as we will see next week. Verse 18, when Jesus... Saw the crowd around him. He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Now, friends, just pause for me and ponder this. Um, Jesus sees all of the great number of multitudes that are surrounding him. His ministry is creating numbers, uh, hundreds upon hundreds of people. Most likely, were crowding around uh, Peter's house. All sorts of people were coming. Jesus sees this. These these ministry crowds. And what does he do? Does he say, let's just camp out here for a while. I'm becoming famous. Let's just stay here and see how how big we can get. What does he do? He doesn't do that. He says, it's time to go. It's time to go. See, we think ministry success is only recorded, is only, is only a considered success when there are tons of people around, right? We want people to come to our church and our events and our studies and our ministries and buy our books and all that stuff, but, but Jesus apparently really isn't impressed by that, and it, I think it, it's, a, it's a good lesson even before we get into the lessons. See, ministry success is not measured entirely by numbers. Jesus teaches us that. Ministry success is not measured entirely by numbers. Jesus sees the crowds. And he's not impressed. He says, time to go. Time to go. I have something else to do. So friends, when you see the thousands upon thousands of people at a megachurch on TV, don't be overly impressed. Jesus saw large crowds. He attracted huge numbers. And here he says, it's time to go. It's time to go across the lake. And so the scene is set. It's nighttime. Miracles have been performed. Crowds are pressing in. And Jesus says, uh, time to go. Time to go. Boys, Get in the boat. And that is when he is interrupted. He wants to leave. He's ready to go because, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he has a meeting with a a demon-possessed man. He wants to go and get to him. But first, two men approach him. And we see that in verse 19. First is the scribe. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, Rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus is about to get in the boat, right? They're getting ready to go across the lake. I can see him. His feet are wet. His robe is wet. He's about to get in. And a man runs up to him. The scribe runs up to him. Teacher, teacher, wait. Teacher, wait. I want to follow you. And, And I'll follow you wherever you go. Notice number Number one, the man's vocation. The text says that he was a teacher of the law. In other words, this man was an expert both in Jewish Tradition, and he was an expert in the Jewish scriptures. He was the teacher in Israel. People wanted to know if you wanted to live a faithful life, if you wanted to interpret the scriptures rightly. This is the man, the kind of man that you went to. So notice his vocation in Jesus's day. Most of the 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 scribes were of the Pharisaical school. They were Pharisees, and in the Gospels we often see the Pharisees and the scribes team up to clash with Jesus. So mostly they're portrayed negatively, but here, not so much, right? This man, maybe he heard Jesus's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he saw the miracles. We don't know what caused him to want to follow Jesus, but we know that he wants to. He wants to follow Jesus. Notice his vow. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, I think it's, I think it's um, significant that he simply gives him this honorary title, teacher, right? It was just a, a title of honor that one religious leader would give to the next. I don't think he believes this man is, is is God's divine son. I'm not sure he believes he's Israel's Messiah, but he, he sees him as a rabbi, as a teacher, worth emulating, worth following. And so he offers Jesus um, Hey, I I want to follow you and I'll follow you wherever you go. He thinks that he's ready to become a full-time follower or learner from Jesus. And so he makes Jesus an offer. But as the, as the, as the German martyr under um, Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, discipleship, he said, is not an offer that man makes to Christ. No, my friends, discipleship is a demand that Christ makes of man. And so this guy offers Jesus something. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 20, his reply. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Essentially, Jesus says, following me is not exactly what you think, is what he says. It's not going to be what you think. It, it, It will likely mean hardship it will likely mean an uncomfortable life. It will likely mean uh, giving up some things. It will likely mean even suffering, being deprived of maybe even the basic necessities. Foxes, they have a place to rest, right? And, and, and birds, well, they also have a place to rest. But if you choose to follow me and get in this boat and go across the sea, um, it may not be that comfortable for you. We may not find a landing place, right? Because the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's significant that Jesus uses this title. In fact, in the Gospels, this is the first time that Jesus uses this title of himself. We're going to see it 87 other times throughout the Bible. But here is the first time. The Son of Man. Jesus is emphasizing his humanity. He's fully human as well as fully God, but he, maybe even more so than his humanity, the Son of Man indicates his humility. He is the divine Son of God who humbly became one of us. And he's saying, listen, if you want to follow me, you've got to humble yourself. It's, discipleship is not easy. I don't think Jesus was discouraging him, but I think he was telling him, count the cost. Count the cost before you come into a relationship with me of discipleship because commitment without comfort is what Jesus demands. Commitment without comfort is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so, fellow Christians, I think we need to ponder that. Jesus is clear. We too must count the cost of following him as our savior and as our Lord because he demands from us nothing less than commitment without comfort. And I don't know about you, I'll be right honest. I like to be comfortable. I don't know about you, but I like to be comfortable. And so when I encounter Christ, I have to come to this fundamental realization that it may not be easy. That when I sign up to be a Christian and to follow Christ, we're not signing up for an easy life. We're not signing up to stay at the Hilton, right? Jesus says, I have no place to, uh, to, to, to rest my head. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are called to forego all sorts of things to follow Christ. We're called to forsake all sorts of sins, filthy language, unforgiveness, lust, sexual immorality. We could go on and on and on. Not only are we called, up to, called to give up things, but we're, it's just we're called to do hard things like to love our enemies, I don't want to love my enemy. How about you? It's hard, right? But that's what Christ calls us to do to pray for those who persecute us. It's counterintuitive. So, friends, we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Are are we willing, for instance, to let go of being maybe in the majority opinion in our culture? Because if you follow Christ, you will not be. You will not be. Are you willing to endure maybe the slander? from those who don't like what we believe or what we say or what we stand for? Are you willing to be called all sorts of names for your stand on all sorts of positions, be it abortion or sexual activity or the definition of marriage or the dignity of human life or the exclusivity of Christ as the only way to heaven or whatever it might be? Friends, we too need to count the cost. And maybe you are a Christian here today. You need to count the cost. Maybe you're considering becoming a Christian. We need to count the cost because Jesus said, if they treat me like this, then what? They're going to treat you like this. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was the Far Side cartoon. I want to show you one on the screen here. This is one of the ones that I remember growing up, right? One deer looks at the other, sees the red dot. Bummer of a birthmark, how? right? <laughs> I love these, and this is one of my favorite ones, right? Bummer, man. That's just a, that's bad luck. Friends, for those of us who have trusted in Christ— For those of us who have trusted in Christ, we need to be reminded of this truth, right? There's a birthmark that comes along with being a Christian, right? It might mean a target on your chest. That's what it means to follow Christ. And for those of us who have already trusted in Christ, we need to, again, consider this truth, count the cost again and again. Because Jesus demands commitment without comfort. The story is told of uh, the gentleman on the screen behind me. His name is Clarence Jordan. You may be familiar with a, I hesitate to call it a translation. It's more of a paraphrase. He wrote the paraphrase of the New Testament, and he called it the cotton patch New Testament. You Maybe you're familiar with it or not. but. Um, it's an interesting translation. Uh, as the story goes, he was getting uh, a, a sort of a red carpet tour. He was in this large church, and this pastor was very proud of all the nice things that they had. And so he pointed out the very nice pews and the and luxurious decorations. And they stepped outside, and there was a large cross atop their building. And the pastor was quite proud of it, and he said, That cross alone costed us $10,000. And this humble sort of farmer, Christian guy, cotton patch, you know, uh, Clarence, we'll call him. He said, man, you got cheated. Because there were times, and there are times, even now, when Christians would get crosses for free. And you know what I mean, right? We're called to follow Christ. We're called to die to ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow him. So, we've seen the scribe, right? Right? We've seen the scribe. Jesus demands commitment without comfort, but then there is another. We'll call him the son in verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. We'll call him the son. If the first man was too quick to be a follower of Jesus without counting the cost, this man is a little too hesitant. Unlike the first man, this man, according to Matthew, is already considered a disciple, right? Another disciple. He had been following Jesus up until this time point. But apparently a conflict had arisen. He had something pressing in his mind that he needed to tend to first back at home before he got in the boat and went to the other side of the sea. And so he says, Jesus, I still want to be your disciple, but first let me go, and the the text here in the NIV reads, let me go and bury my father. So he wants a Pass. He says, Jesus, I know you're going. You're going places. You're doing things. You're going to go across the sea. I just want a, a pass just for right now until I take care of something. I had a one of my favorite math teachers in high school. Uh, she was a great teacher. I learned a lot. But one of the things I really appreciated about her class is if for good behavior and sort of sustained academic success, success she would give us what she called uh, these passes. So we got homework passes. If there happened to be a day we were uh, out late at the ball game. We could offer up a homework pass and not have to turn on our homework. Uh, we even had test passes that if we did well enough, we could opt out of a test. We had this this option, these, these passes. And this is sort of what this man was wanting. He's like, Jesus, I just need a pass on this one because I've got something to do. And notice what he has to do. <clears throat> he says, let me go and bury my father. Now, this was most likely an idiom, right? It was most likely an idiom that meant, I need to go tend to my family's business until my father passes away. And when my father passes away, guess what would come to him? The inheritance. So most scholars agree, and I tend to think that they're right, that this man, it's not like his father just died an hour ago. I don't believe that to be true. I think what this man is saying is, you know what? I've got some other priorities. I really would like to get my inheritance. I need, there's some business for me to tend to back home. So first, let me do that, and then I will follow you. How do you think Jesus is going to respond to that? Verse 22. But Jesus told him, follow me. Follow me. As in, right now. As in, don't wait. Follow me right now and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, at first, we're like, man, Jesus is harsh. He doesn't care about this guy's father passing away. I don't think his father's dead. I think this man loves money and he wants to go and do that and then follow Christ. Let the dead bury their own dead, meaning let those who are spiritually dead, those who aren't interested in following me, let them bury those who are physically dead. It sounds harsh, But what did Jesus say just a chapter or two ago on the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you can't serve both God and money. This man is not really wanting to be a disciple of Christ. And he's approaching King Jesus. King Jesus. And he says, I've got something else to do. So Jesus tells the man, follow me at any cost. Yes, it's going to cost you something if you're going to get in the boat and follow me right now. Follow me at any cost Because Jesus demands commitment without compromise. Friends, it's true for him, and it's true for us today. So we need to ask ourselves, in what area of our lives are we giving Jesus an excuse for not putting him first? In what area of our life are we offering Jesus a pass? Saying, Jesus, I really want to pass on this area of life. Here's another way to think of it. To what are we saying, Lord, first let me Fill in the blank, right? Lord, Jesus, first let me what? Fill in the blank. Lord, first let me make my riches and grow my business, then I'll be serious about following you. Lord, first let me, let me enjoy being single and sexually free, then I'll do it your way and get married and all that junk. Lord, first let me, let me live my life by my own rules. Let me be the one in charge. And then when I'm older, okay, I'll fall under your lordship. First, Lord, first let me enjoy my kids. Let me enjoy my life at home. Then I'll get involved in ministry and stuff that you care about. What is it? How are you filling that blank? First, let me what? So that's how the story ends. We don't get resolution here. Matthew doesn't tell us how the story ends. What did the scribe do? What did he do? What did the the son? What did he do? How did how did how did these men respond to Jesus's demands for commitment without comfort and commitment without compromise? Did they heed his call or did they not? We simply don't know. And friends, I think it's intentional. I think Matthew wants us to put ourselves in their shoes and to say How would I respond if Jesus said this to me? Because guess what? He is saying it to you and to me. How does the story end? We don't know. How will it end in your life? How will it end in my life? I want to close our sermon today in preparation for singing a song of commitment here with a story of what can happen when people do heed Jesus' call for commitment without comfort and commitment without compromise. I want to tell you a story of a well-known coach. He was speaking as the story goes uh, at a fellowship of Christian athletes conference and he was speaking, he was giving his testimony and at the end of it he says, "Men uh, and women, I've got something to confess." He pulled out a letter that was was written to him by one of his athletes. He was a football coach. We'll see him in just a moment. He was a football coach and uh, he said this this, this is a letter that I have from one of my football players, and he started reading it. I'm not going to quote it, but it said something like this. Dear Coach, I'm not coming back to play for you this fall. It's because I'm a Christian. It's because I'm a Christian, and you claim to be a Christian, that I cannot come and play for you. And the letter said, you claim to be a Christian, but you continually motivate us with anger and cursing and screaming and on and on and on. And he went on to say, if I'm going to be a Christian, and if I'm going to play for a Christian, then I really want to play for one who doesn't keep Christ concealed in his vest pocket but one over which Christ is Lord over his whole life. And he put the letter in, and in that moment, this coach said, Men, I have to apologize both to God and to you and to my players, because I'm a Christian, but I have not been letting Christ lead my life. And he publicly confessed his sin and repented of that. And out of that testimony, he began to talk with other men. He began to talk with other coaches and other men about what what does it look like to be a man after God? You can show his picture now. His name is Bill McCartney. His name is Bill McCartney. Do we have a picture? Do we not? I don't know. If not, that's fine. His name is Bill McCartney. Imagine a coach in your mind, okay? Bill McCartney. He's most known in the sports world for leading the University of Colorado to a share of the national championship in 1990. But more importantly for our purposes, he founded the ministry called Promise Keepers. You ever heard of that? Men's ministry called Promise Keepers, which has affected thousands of men for the sake of Christ. And all of it was born out of this moment, when he realized Christ's call for commitment without compromise and commitment without comfort, and he responded, responded to that, and God did amazing things through him. Friends, what might God do if we too would heed this call? We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song of commitment, a familiar hymn to most of us. So if you would, as the worship team comes, let's pray and prepare our hearts to respond in song. <clears throat> Father, we come to you and ask that you would give us a response much like Coach McCartney had, that we too would recognize the areas in our own life when we are putting you and uh, on the back burner. Lord, help us not to do this. To heed your call to commitment without comfort and without compromise. May we surrender all today in Christ's name and God's people said.